Well, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 Summer Interlude Between Seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Color of Death and the Law of Life, Part 2. In order to achieve liberation and environmental justice, as envisioned by the United Nations Earth Charter, it is necessary to shape the hearts and minds of the rising generation. One of the main planks of the radical environmentalist platform is to ensure that children have been indoctrinated regarding the facts about climate change and understand their own negative impact on the Earth as analogous to a virus infecting a host. Sir James Lovelock has put it thus, Humans on the Earth behave in some ways like a pathogenic microorganism or like the cells of a tumour. And David Graeber, a biologist with the United States National Park Service, writes, We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon Earth. Until such a time as Homo sapiens should desire to rejoin nature, some of us can only hope for the right virus to come along. This rather startling statement suggests many a green religionist longs for a disease to come and wipe out vast swathes of the human population, so long as they themselves are not one of the victims. Consequently, by living and breathing, children are increasingly taught they are poisoning the biosphere with their carbon emissions and consuming resources the earth cannot replenish. Logically then, Big families are a bad thing, and productiveness is a form of cosmic criminality. The human species is thought to be overpopulating the Earth and raping Gaia by extracting her limited resources. The kind of guilt complex that results from such teaching makes people easy prey for master manipulators to control others for a planned society. So the younger generation have been well-groomed to swallow the propaganda of the political class, seeking an ever stronger grip on power to save the planet. Interestingly, when I was in school in the 1980s, a transition in the apocalyptic predictions for humanity's future was well underway. In the 70s and early 80s, we were being warned of a foreboding and dangerous cooling of the planet that was leading us inexorably into a new global ice age. Then, quite suddenly, our geography classes and social studies curriculum were filled with new prophecies concerning not only the total depletion of oil and coal within decades due to human exploitation of the planet, but a terrifying new threat, man-made, catastrophic global warming. Eco-justice then had entered the curriculum, its green utopian fingers gradually touching all aspects of the educational establishment. 
One wasn't sure whether to wear a t-shirt or a sweater to class. Were we about to join the woolly mammoths frozen in the ice with no gas left to warm our toes or die of sunburn in a global greenhouse? Then, 25 years on, the nomenclature changed again. First, an ice age, then global warming, and now climate change. An elastic panacea, flexible enough to cover all eventualities produced by humanity's invasive, exploitative, and destabilizing influence on the ecology of the planet. Back in September 2013, though, the British Daily Telegraph reported that a number of scientists and even climate research centres had been forced to accept that there had been a pause in global warming since 1997. In this 2013 article, the Telegraph reported a record increase in the polar ice cap and that the Northwest Passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific had remained blocked by pack ice all year, forcing some ships to take other routes. In fact, one leaked report to the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has led some scientists to claim that the world may again be entering a period of cooling that may not end until the middle of this century. The tragedy and travesty is that the original predictions of catastrophic man-made warming have led to billions being invested in green measures to fight the alleged effects of climate change with a huge impact on human well-being, most especially the poor. Clearly then, many of the things that my generation heard about growing up and much of what is heard today by our children is a distortion of the truth, mere indoctrination in service of a wider political and religious agenda. So serious are these popular distortions that Al Gore's famous film, An Inconvenient Truth, was judged by a British court to contain so many errors it could no longer be shown in government schools without an accompanying list and refutation of its litany of distortions. Contrary to popular myth, the world is not overpopulated. Actually, demographically, it's going into decline. We are not catastrophically warming the planet. The Earth's resources are not about to be exhausted. And carbon is not killing us. It is feeding trees, though. Although the created order was placed under a curse due to man's sin, resulting in much toil and arduous labor for man to develop its resources, the overall picture of Earth in scripture is that of a good, abundant gift of God that is sufficient for human flourishing and destined for total renewal and restoration. The command for man to have dominion over the earth has not been rescinded. This creational command and creation grace clearly implies that people were not created to live in poverty or by endless subsistence. Rather, with joy and thanksgiving, we are to reflect our maker by enhancing the beauty and fruitfulness of the earth. As such, we would expect that God created a world with abundant resources, sufficient for all human history, to be responsibly developed and improved 
by God-given creativity for the blessing of all. As Christians, do we actually expect that obedience to God will bring blessing and benefit to the earth and man? Or do we think that obedience brings harm? If God's purpose is for humanity to develop the rich and diverse resources of the earth for human life and enjoyment, with thanksgiving returned to God, it does stand to reason that Satan's purpose would be to oppose and hinder that development in every possible way, to undermine and destroy human life and flourishing. The diabolic lies that are pervading our culture that seek the ruin of the many in the name of being green and saving the planet must be resisted by biblically faithful Christians. Sadly, the track record of the church, particularly amongst those denominations who have abandoned the full authority of scripture, has been to promote support and adopt the green religious propaganda, like a new version of the social gospel for the planet itself. For those of us who care about the planet, it is very important to understand that ecology and religious environmentalism are not the same thing. Likewise, being green is not identical to caring for the natural world. Rejecting the apocalyptic predictions and pseudoscience of the popular media does not mean a commitment to a misuse of God's creation. On the contrary, just because the idea of catastrophic man-made global warming as nature's judgment on humanity is the linchpin of an elaborate eco-political theology with pagan roots, that has little to do with science, does not mean that Christians are to be unconcerned about their God-given environment. When we speak of the environment, we are literally referring to everything that surrounds us. However, we can only speak rationally of the environment and care for it if we are not identical with what surrounds us. What do I mean? Well. In the Christian worldview, there is first an absolute distinction between the creator and the creature, so that God is not identical with nature. And second, man himself is distinguished from the rest of creation because he is made in the image of God. Whilst human beings are dependent creatures made from the earth, and in this sense, part of the stuff of creation, the breath and image of God in man and his specific calling in regards to creation distinguishes him qualitatively from all other life. Humanistic pagan worldviews, however, collapse these biblical distinctions. According to pagan worldviews, God is not distinct from nature, but identical with it. And man is merely one aspect of the cosmic ecology, the great unfolding of mother nature, and so no more significant than anything else within the essential interrelatedness of all things. As a result, pagan man's care for the environment is more properly a narcissistic preoccupation with his own salvation or liberation from the living God. Here he sees himself as simply cosmic dust and one at root with all things. 
On this basis, for man to live, what must die is his illegitimate embrace of his special significance and qualitative distinction from all that is. Likewise, this ancient Christian error leads to a ruling or dominion function in relationship to nature, which is supposedly destroying it. To save himself, man must cease to develop and rule the earth in terms of any alien purpose to those expressed in nature itself. That is, in terms of the purposes of a living God who gave mankind a specific stewardship command. But the living God's purposes are not alien because he is the creator and sustainer of all things, defining the meaning and appointing the right use of all created reality. The Bible therefore sets man as God's vicegerent in a position of kingly service and stewardship within a creation that God is sustaining. If human beings understand their relationship to creation correctly in terms of God's creative work and cultural mandate, recognizing also his redemptive and restorative purposes, then we will be brought into right relationship with our total environment, animal, vegetable, and mineral. That relationship is not in terms of the pagan concept of identity, but that of distinction and vocation. That vocation is to represent God to the rest of creation. The idea of rule in the Hebrew language of Genesis 1 established a hierarchy where man, as God's image bearer, reminds all creation of its creator and king. But in what precisely does this kingly rule consist? The common assumption is that man's rule is necessarily abusive. But this does not follow from scripture. Human kingship in creation is to reflect the kingship of the creator himself, which is a rule of providential care. Human stewardship in the Bible consists in subduing chaotic or disordering forces in creation and battling those that have entered the world through sin, like disease, imbalance or deformity in human animal, and plant life. All these things involve the exercise of wisdom, imitating God's wisdom, which founded the universe after all. The seventh day on which God rested after the creation days was a rest of dominion, enjoyment, celebration, and victory. Since appreciation and celebration are the hallmark of God's dominion, our efforts at dominion must reflect his enjoyment and joy in all that has been made. Creation thus has value as God's creation, not simply because it's useful to us. And this fact gives us a responsibility to reflect the character of our maker toward all creation, manifest by mediating God's blessing in an enabling and sustaining care that brings forth fruitfulness. Our reign and rule in creation is like Christ to his church or the husband to the wife, government through service, sacrificial service. In so doing, we share God's rule. Our relationship to creation then is vocational. 
and is modeled on that of Adam, the first human king set in creation. He is required by God to till and tend the Garden of Eden. The verb translated till, abad, literally means to develop when the object is inanimate, and tend, shamar, means to guard and protect. This is the intended character of man's rule, care, and service. With the entrance of sin into the world, man's rule has often been perverted and abused, becoming the exercise of domination, not dominion. The answer to this exploitative disordering of reality due to sin is salvation and restoration in Jesus Christ, the last Adam, and true dominion man, in whose image the Christian is being fashioned. The Bible everywhere anticipates the restoration of humanity and the environment by the saving work of our true creator and king. The transformation of the fallen order is explicitly tied to the transformation and obedience of man himself. In Christ, the scripture says the Christian has become a royal or kingly priest after the likeness of the second Adam, the true man, and exercises dominion not in terms of domination or godless power, but ethically in terms of God's law. And God's law requires care and concern for his world. Let me show you. Let's look briefly at some of the ways that God calls man to exercise caring, thoughtful stewardship over creation. In Deuteronomy 22, 6 through 7, we find the requirement with regard to birds, some of the smallest creatures. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself that it may go well with you and that you may live long. A remarkable text about conservation. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, associates righteousness with respect for working animals. In Proverbs 12:10, we read, whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel a remarkable text about care for animals. Even the land and the trees are protected under God's law. Deuteronomy 20.19 says that when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human? that they should be besieged by you. And we could add and multiply examples of this throughout scripture. Sabbath rest for land, animal, and man, for example. It should be clear by now that God is concerned with the way his people treat the world that he has made. One last illustration is one that I love to return to from the New Testament. In John 20, 15, the resurrected Christ meets Mary in the garden where he was buried, or we might say planted. 
John tells us that Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. In Christ, the new Adam, the last Adam, who was resurrected in a garden where he is mistaken for its gardener, we become God's redeemed gardeners, tilling and tending all things, turning creation into a culture to the glory of God, a suitable habitation for the abiding presence and glory of the King. A truly biblical Christianity then will resist the counterfeit faith of environmentalism with its sacraments of sexual license and death, stand against its false saints and their substitute doctrines of predestination, judgment and atonement, and fight their lawless oppression of the poor, indifference to the vulnerable and destruction of the unborn. The blood of Christ ran red, not green. His law and atonement is the only true liberation of man. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Only Christ can renew a fallen creation, make us truly dominion men and women, bring history to its conclusion and unveil an eternal kingdom of righteousness in terms of his everlasting word. His law is life and his gospel speaks peace and wholeness to all creation. In short, obedience is green. <laughs>